I think out of 1,500 podcasts, I can't remember another podcast where I cried in the middle of the podcast. And I have on Nick Shaw. He wrote a book about an intense experience he had and his life after that. The book's called My Teacher, My Son, Lessons on Life, Loss, and Love. Again, it's called My Teacher, My Son, Lessons on Life, Loss, and Love. Beautiful book. But let's let him tell the story. Here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Uh, Nick, I was very, I mean, I did not expect this, but honestly, I was crying while I read your book. And it was very moving and I'm really sorry for what happened to you. And I'm really glad you wrote this book and, and kind of got your lessons down. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. That was, uh, my hope is that the book would have impact. That's kind of why I wrote it. So, yeah. And I'll, I'll do an introduction with the title and, and all that. Well, actually this is sort of the introduction. So it's called my teacher, my son lessons on life, loss and love. And Nick, it's your kind of journey of, the loss four and a half years ago of your nine-year-old son in, in February, 2019, and what's happened to you since then. And again, it was, I'll let you tell the story, but it was, it, I was really moved by it, but I don't know where, you, I mean, I don't know where you want to start. Like, do you want to st start with the day that obviously the day your son died was the day that started all of this. And, and again, it's, it's, it's horrible. I was, I couldn't help but think of my own children and, uh, and how I would react. And, and you really, you know, have a, have a brave example here in the, in this book. Yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, I'm happy to, to kind of start at that day. Cause that, that is really where, where all this, this journey began. Um, so on, on a ski vacation, uh, in uh, Montana, big side, Montana, uh, I grew up skiing my whole life. It's, a, it's actually a, skiing was a big passion of mine. Um, and, you know, a day that started like any other day, we're all excited to get out there on the mountain and beautiful day, beautiful conditions. Um, you know, we, we, I took William to the top of the mountain. Uh, he'd been looking forward to getting up there for, for a year because we went the year before, but didn't make it up there. And, and he was a, a very good skier, right? He was, yeah. He skied on the... He was nine years old, but... Yeah, he was nine years old, skied on the local ski team here in, in Massachusetts. And I took him to the top of the mountain, had the run of his life. Like it was amazing, right? He was top of his game. I had, I had the whole thing videoed on a GoPro. And then as we were heading down to the bottom of the mountain uh, to, to meet up with my my wife and my, my younger son, Kai, uh, we were on a catwalk. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a fairly flat road that kind of winds its way down the mountain. And I was about 10, 15 feet in front of him and and as I was rounding a bend to kind of follow this road on down the hill, a skier came whizzing past me and said, hey, was that your kid who went into the woods? Because uh, William is a bit behind me because, you know, it's a fairly flat road and I'm heavier, so I was my momentum was carrying me. So I quickly stopped, took my skis off, and started to walk up the hill, and, and I, he was nowhere to be found. So. At which point, like, did you start to fear that something happened? I mean, it was... It, it was a weird, it was, I mean, it's, it's a good question. Um, I was walking up the hill and just to give a bit of the, you know, the sort of context, um, off this slope was, it was kind of steep off the side of this, this road and it was heavily wooded with powder snow. So I walked up the mountain thinking, okay, I'm going to find him sort of buried in powder snow, having a hard time getting out, which is typically what happens when you fall into those types of places. But as I walked up the mountain, he was nowhere to be found. There was no impression in the snow or no marks where he may have skied off. There was nothing. It was like he just disappeared. And it was a bit unsettling because it's like, well, you know, I thought I was going to see him. So I, I, I ran back to my skis and then I, I started to go into the woods, try to find him. But the, the snow was so deep, I couldn't I couldn't get much further than sort of five to ten feet in. And, and, I, and I fell into pretty deep powder snow and got stuck for a while. And eventually when I clawed my way out... Um, Someone who worked at the mountain saw me and asked if I needed help. I said, yes, my son's missing. And then a search ensued. And so, I mean, yeah, I was, I was in 
pretty panic mode at that point because I know he didn't ski past me. He was nowhere to be found in the woods. So I was like, you know what? I just didn't even know or couldn't even understand what was going on. And and there's there was no sign at all of where you you could last see his skis, the ski tracks. No, nothing. That that's that was the weird thing about it. And even when the ski patrol came, the first thing they looked for is is signs or tracks. And they said, well, there's nothing here. He must have skied past you. So they sent me down to the bottom of the mountain to see if I could find him down there. And while well, they continued to look for him. And were you in constant communication with them at that time or like? Yeah. What? So when I went down the mountain, they uh, hooked me up with another ski patroller, uh, a female ski patrol at the bottom of the hill. And we, she helped me search for him. And so she was in constant communication with them uh, via her walkie talkie. And then what happened? So I came outside after looking for him inside the lodge. And then I heard, you know, her walkie talkie kind of crackle alive. And I, and I, and I heard, the following, uh, he's found, but unresponsive. And I was like, that just gut punched. I just, I fell to my knees. I just, you know, to hear that your son is found, but unresponsive is just, yeah. It, you know, so it's the worst thing you can think of, but even in that moment, you think, okay, maybe he's unconscious or, or whatever. So they, they then took me up the, the hill about a couple hundred yards up the hill. There was a ski patrol clinic. So they took me on a snowmobile up there and then I waited for him to arrive. And again, I still thought, okay, it's an accident. He's maybe he's unconscious. Maybe I didn't know what the extent of it was. So, so I was just waiting in the clinic and, and until they finally brought him in. And, and even when they brought him in again, you know, you still cling to that hope. And I heard a helicopter had come outside and I was like, okay, well maybe the helicopter's here so they can take him to a, a bigger hospital. So for a while I was still, you know, hopeful that he was, just needing some treatment. But then eventually the, uh, the doctor came out and, you know, said, sorry, and, and we couldn't do anything for your son. And like, I mean, there must've been a million things going through your head. Like, first off, when you saw him come in and you saw that he was unresponsive, what, what did you think then? Did you think, okay, at least they're bringing him in to work on him? Yeah. So I, I didn't actually see him because they, they kind of, had me in sort of a waiting area and they, they, they stationed a nurse next to me, or I think she was a nurse just to kind of talk to me and try to calm me down. I don't think they wanted me anywhere near when he was going to arrive because I didn't want me to have any type of reaction. So I didn't see him actually come in. I just heard him come in or the commotion. Um, yeah. And then, um, again, I'm just, it's just the uncertainty of it all. Right? You just don't know what's going on. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. And then eventually you, 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 you experience what you've seen so many times. I know it's cliche, but on all these different, you know, TV shows, you know, any, any hospital drama, you see these scenes all the time on TV and, and then you're in it. You're actually literally in that scene. You're, you're the parent who's like, gets told the worst possible news you could ever imagine. Yeah. I, th I think you have a, a statistic in the book. Um, I forget the exact scene. It was around 10 kids per thousand, about 1% of kids ages five to 13, something like that die per year. So it's a very small percentage. And like, yeah. and as you put it, like now you were in that, that statistic, that set. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, exactly. You're, I mean, we're in the modern time. So child mortality's not as normal as it once was. And, and, uh, particularly when you get to nine years old. Right. Um, so yeah, we're at, we were, we were instantaneously, we were outliers. And then they tell you, and you haven't, you were, you were by yourself more or less, like your wife wasn't there, your other son wasn't there, your six-year-old son Kai wasn't there. It was you and William that were up on the mountain. And mm -hmm. so again, like that moment, like what was, what was going through your head? I hope you don't mind me asking these questions. This is what I, this is what I do, but I know it gets- No, 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 I, I, I have no, you know, I, 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 I'll talk about this to anybody. I have no problem talking about it. And, and I think the experience is a big part of it, right? So I think it's, it's important people understand what happened. Um, I mean, instantaneously you go into, you go into shutdown mode. I mean, like you, you know, you, you, the stability of your life is gone in that moment, right? Everything you thought your life should be, how it should unfold, that's completely shattered. So you go into this crazy, just you shut down. Like I was shut down. It was just like, I was in a fog. I, I didn't quite understand what was going on. Um, now my wife hadn't gotten there. She had gone back to the cabin we'd rented to see if William had somehow skied there. So she was making her way to the clinic at that point. Um, yeah, it was, I, I just, it, it's incomprehensible. And so your mind is trying to rationalize what happened and it's not something that you can even rationalize in that moment. And so I'm just there just 
trying to make sense out of this thing. And then I remember one of the first sort of real reactions I had was when I, when I kind of realized, okay, well, he's, he just died. And, and then I realized I wasn't alone. And I was like, that was, that was probably one of the worst feelings. Cause the first thing that I thought of was, was what am I going to tell my son, Kai? Like, how do I tell a six year old that his brother's dead? Uh, how do I face my wife who I was skiing, who that, that, you know, I was with Wayne when it happened. How do I face her? And that just really sent me into, yeah, just an emotional spin uh, and, and a downward spiral of just, you know, guilt and just, it was, a, it was a, not, a, not a great place to be. I can't even imagine all the conflicting emotions because you're right. There's, how do you tell your six-year-old? How do you tell your wife, not only that her son, your son is, is not there anymore, but also there's also, you know, and, and you hate to put it this way, but there's also fear that everyone's going to blame you. You mentioned this in the book, like you're, you know, you were there with him. Yeah. Well, and, and then you hear the horror stories, right? I mean, you hear the horror stories about what happens when this kind of tragedy uh, hits a family. You hear about divorce and all kinds of other things that happen. You, I mean, your mind just immediately goes to the worst possible places, right? You're just, and so, yeah, it's, it was hard. And, and, I, and I remember that, that, that period of time where I was waiting for my wife to get there. It was just like the uncertainty of it all was just like unbearable. And I was just pacing back and forth and, I did, you know, you just didn't know. I didn't know what she, I didn't know if she was going to, you know, just lose it on me or, and it would have been understandable, you know, if she had done that, but um, yeah, it, it was just yet another period of uncertainty, which, which was a pattern obviously for the next while in our lives after it happened. Yeah. Like those next few minutes while you were waiting for her and after you heard the news, like, what did you do? Did you just stand there? Was, were people around you? Like what was, what did you do then? Because I, I don't quite. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I, I I honestly, I don't even know. I mean, it, it, it that you know some of that some of those kind of details are definitely a bit foggy. I, I, I can imagine. I think I was just. I'm I'm a very I'm, so I'm an introvert and and I tend to go inward uh, and it's my place of comfort. So I imagine I was just zoning out. It just trying to figure it out inside my, in my head. I mean, I was just, the, the, the wheels were spinning and turning and going every which way direction um, at, while I was waiting for her. And then she shows up, you see her. Yeah, so this is one of the most amazing things that I think I've, I've ever experienced. So my wife comes, she arrives to the clinic and uh, I, I think we were, we were about 10 feet apart and, uh, and I have, I tell her, I said, look, he's dead. Um, and immediately she, she crumbles to the ground. She's, you know, just a complete, you know, the emotion overtakes her. And so I, I rush over to her and I, and I, and I join her on the ground. We're both kneeling and, uh, hugging. And then as we, as we both stand up and she composes herself, she kind of put both hands on my shoulders and she looked me in the eye and she said, uh, it's not your fault. And. I mean, I was almost, I was stunned in the moment, right? Cause I was expecting, you know, a different reaction. And it's a, it's an amazing thing, right? To, for, for her to have put her own pain aside in that moment. Cause she knew that's what I needed to hear. She knew, obviously she knows me, we, we have a good marriage and uh, she knows just how hard I was going to be on myself through this whole thing because I was with William. And so for her to say that to me in that moment, it's, it's, it's one of the most selfless acts that, that I've ever had done to me, right? And, uh, and it set the tone, uh, James, because, you know, had she said something different, it might have set me off or it might have set, you know, caused friction between the two of us. But that set the tone of, of how we were going to figure this whole thing out together. And then you go back to um, the family that you were vacationing with. They were watching Kai and uh, you see Kai is playing games with his friend. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, on the way there, did you and your wife have any conversation? Like what's, what's kind of like, what do people talk about in this moment? Or is there just nothing to say? Yeah, I, 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 honestly, there's nothing to say. Um, I don't think we were, we weren't ready to talk things out. Right? I think we were still, we were still in this sort of zombie-like surreal state. Um, 
maybe your brain's almost protecting you. Like, okay, you knew the next task was tell Kai, the six-year-old, you know, younger brother of, of William, and you just stayed focused on that. Like the brain wouldn't let you veer from that. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps. I mean, I think that our brains are amazing things, and our bodies are amazing things, and they kind of they take over in those moments um, to try to protect you from from yourself in in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I think we were both just in going into that pr protective cocoon of silence and and just trying to make sense of this thing. So now, not mu not much was said uh, in you know uh, you know after you know on the on the short drive from the from the clinic to the to the the condo where our friends were staying. And so you see Kai and what, what, what happens then? Yeah, we walked into the apartment and, you know, Kai, six years old, he's playing with the, the, you know, the kids of, uh, of, uh, you know, our family friends. And, um, you know, it was, you know, here he is, you know, you're, I mean, I, and I talk about this in the book, you know, you're looking at this, this, this very innocent child and, and you know that you have to basically, um, shatter that innocence, right? You have to, you have to basically tell them, you know, one of the worst possible things that exists in life, right? It's, it's, you know, the death of a sibling. Um, and so, yeah, in that moment, it was, it was heavy. I, you know, I, I didn't want to do it, but, but obviously I felt, I felt that I had to do it because I was with William. Um, and so we just took him into a, a bedroom and I, I sat him on my lap and, and you know, the best I could come up with is there was an accident. Um, your brother won't be coming back and, and, and he's in heaven. And, and that's, that's all I could figure. I mean, again, there's no, there's no playbook for this, right? Uh, there's no sort of these, are, this is what you say when this happens. And, and that's the best I could come up with. And, you know, he kind of just looked at me with his big eyes. He didn't, he didn't have an emotional reaction. He just, I think his brain was trying to figure it out to the extent that it could at that age. And then he eventually just got off my lap and went back to playing with the other kids. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with 
really amazing potential employer. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Is there a parallel in your life? Like when you were younger, what's the, what's the first close loss you experienced? How old were you? That's a good question. I mean, I, it was, it was, I mean, probably in, in college, it, it was, I, I don't, I mean, I was grandparents or yeah, grandparents, I'd, I'd say probably grandparents. Yeah. So maybe even closer to like in, in my thirties, to be honest with you, I was fortunate not to have uh, been confronted with that kind of loss in my life. Yeah, I, I for for me it was grandparents. It was never anybody close like what what Kai was experiencing then. And, I mean that kind of close. And I'm just trying to remember what I, as a six year old, uh, was thinking. And really, I know I know I wasn't as sad as, for instance, my father because it was his mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. was his mother that had died. And I know I was more worried about. Um, I just didn't know what to do. Everybody was acting differently and I obviously was sad, but I just didn't know what to do. That's the only thing I was thinking. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm not quite sure what Kai was thinking. I, you know, it's, uh, you know, at that age, you're just developmentally in a different place. And, and at that age, you still very much focused on yourself. I mean, I think there's a certain age where kids are very self-oriented and that's just a normal part of development. And, um, yeah, he was, he's, he's not a super emotive kid, uh, even to this day. Uh, you know, we went, we went to the family therapist and, you know, we did all, you know, we, we got all the resources we could to, to help us through this ordeal. Um, and he just processed things in his own way. Um, and he must've seen over the weeks and following, he must've seen, you know, you and and his mom, uh, upset and, and he was probably like, was he, were you trying to still comfort him while dealing with your own loss or was he in a weird way? Was there any reversal of roles? Like, was he trying to comfort you? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say he was actively trying to comfort us, um, but in a strange way, sort of implicitly he was because, um, so there's a specific event that happened, which I, I talk about in the book. In the days after William died, my wife and I, we, could, we couldn't look at any pictures. It was just way too painful. And as we were planning the funeral and all the, things you have to do when you, when you lose someone, we had a bunch of friends over and they, they, they needed to get a picture for the obituary. And so I gave them my phone. I said, go scroll through my phone and find one. Um, and somehow my phone made it into Kai's hands. And so eventually I noticed this and I, and I walk over to him and I'm like, I, I my instinct was, I, I want to get that phone out of his hand. Cause I, I don't, I don't want him to feel that pain, the pain that I was so afraid of experiencing, you know, had I been the one looking at pictures, but then I got to him and he had this big smile on his face. And he was, he was just like, he just wanted to see a picture of his brother. And there was this resilience about that in, in him in that moment that was like, wow, he, he's, if he's able to do that, that's, that's kind of where I hope to get to someday. And so he, he became kind of like my inspiration on, you know, how to, how to move forward and, 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 and move towards the pain as opposed to move away from it. Um, now it didn't happen in that moment. It took me many, many more months to get there for myself. But just that moment was such a, a salient point to see this little boy just like holding this phone and smiling and, and, and being okay, you know? I guess from like an, like an, thinking about it from an evolutionary psychology point of view, in order for a kid to survive, as opposed to an adult who's, who's developed all of their skills and has, has their place in the tribe and, and so on, a kid needs to adapt constantly to survive mm-hmm. like from for millions of years i guess that's a muscle it's easier to have when you're when you're young I, I, yeah i think that that's that's right i mean kids are highly adaptable uh they first off don't have the years of formation and programming that we do as adults so it's easy for them to sort of change quickly right because they don't have the baggage we do as adults um and i i believe that served him in that moment 
in, in that period of time. And then, so, uh, you know, and, and you, you sort of describe this in the book, but, and I know it's, it's personal also, but how did you and your wife start getting back on track? Because like, as you mentioned, obviously the first thing you thought of even was, okay, this is going to lead to divorce. That's what happens in these situations. It's hard to kind of stay together, not only because there's pain constantly, you're each reminding each other of the pain, but there's also potential guilt and mm -hmm. anger and, and, and so on. So I, I want to mention also that he actually, and this, this I thought was important is that the doctor told you upon the uh, autopsy or the, the coroner told you that probably William died instantly or he, he thought William died instantly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. He, um, so the coroner's report, he, he died from blunt force trauma to the, to the, uh, uh, the head and neck, um, or head and chest, I believe. Um, and so that was, that was for me a, a momentary relief because I thought he had somehow gotten stuck in, in this thing called tree wells, which are these sort of deep holes uh, when there's a lot of powder snow. And I thought he was somehow trapped there and suffocated or, or, you know, so I was obviously going to the worst possible places. So the fact that it was quick, it was pain, it was, you know, pretty much painless was, was, was a small, uh, small piece of relief. You know, over the weeks, months, years since then, how important was it knowing that for your, I don't want to say recovery, but your your progress? Like, if you had heard differently, would that have drastically changed things or I don't it's, know? It's a good, it's a good question, uh, James. I mean, so one of, when, when, before I found that out, I, 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 I you know, I, I tried to play the events of the day, of of that day. I mean, I played them over in my head constantly, and 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 the biggest question was, well, could I somehow got if I could have gotten to him sooner, right? Would he have lived, right? And I remember, I told you I was stuck, and so I couldn't move. Like the snow was like it was like I was encased in concrete. But you know, you hear stories of people doing superhuman things and lifting cars off their kids. You know, adrenaline kicks in, and you know, so I was like, well, why didn't that happen to me? Why couldn't I just power through? Why couldn't I just find him, right? So that was tough to, 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 to have that as an open question was definitely haunting me. And, and yeah, if I'd found out he died of, of suffocation or, or, or whatever, yeah, I, I think it might've been a different, I, I would be, I'd be carrying a sense of guilt with me. It'd be, it'd have been a lot heavier, I, I would say. Um, because, you know, you like to think you can do superhuman things when your kids are uh, in harm's way. Yeah. And also you don't want, I mean, so there's two things there. One is there's thoughts that maybe you could have saved him. And then two, there's reliving and imagining what he might've been going through. And so, Absolutely. you know, I Absolutely. guess that's a saving grace here is that it was just like a, a light switch flipped off in some sense. Yes. So as, as opposed to him going through some bad experience, you and your wife made use of a support group. And there was a, a person there I remember who um, was saying how, he was describing his own experience. And after his daughter died, which was, he was older than you. So it was, it was like something like 20 or 25 years earlier. He said he had mm -hmm. never experienced a day of happiness again. And you kind of resolved, you didn't want to be like that. But when you heard that, what, what did you think? Oh, it, it was, I mean, so we were just, we needed to find a support group. So there was one conveniently in the town next, next, uh, the next town over. So we said, well, let's go try that out. And yeah, this is where we heard that that statement. And this was from like the guy moderating it. And it was, you know, that it was like, and I, and I use this reference, but it's like being handed a sentence, right? Like you're, it's it, you're, you're doing life of unhappy. Your sentence is a life of unhappiness. And I was like, that is, I don't know. That was the most demotivating sort of thing I'd ever heard. Right. To, I mean, obviously it's terrible to lose your child, but you, you, you hope that you hope you'll somehow come out the other side and to hear that from someone. Yeah, it, it was, it was a hard thing to hear. And, and, uh, and at the same time, I, I, you know, my wife and I looked at each other and said, we, we, that's, we, we can't do that. I mean, look, it's funny. A lot of people are like, well, wow, you guys, are, you're unbelievable. You're an inspiration. And I'm happy that we're inspiring people. That's, that's fine. But we, my wife and I had this result. There was no choice, right? It's not like we were going to just throw in the towel and, 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 and then Kai would be uh, uh, at the mercy of whatever happened to him as a result of that. Th there was no choice. We we were going to get through this, uh, come hell or high water, because you know we had this. Uh, we had our other son, and 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 we came up with a mantra 
uh, it's one that I, I you know, kind of came to me one day, it, it, you know, what would Willie want? And, and William would not have wanted us to, to just throw in the towel. And, and, and we, he wouldn't have wanted his little brother to suffer more than he had already. So I, I don't know why, but that was we, from the earliest days. And, and maybe it started when my wife and I met in, you know, when we saw each other in the clinic, but we were, we had this very deep resolution to not let this destroy our family. What do you think would have happened or what do you think would have been different if you didn't have Kai, if Kai wasn't there, if you didn't have a second son? It's, 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 it's funny you ask that because it's something my wife and I would have talked about a couple, like we'd say, thank God we have Kai, right? Because if we didn't have a son, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if we would have survived because what are we fighting for? I mean, yes, our marriage was strong, but we had nothing anchoring us. Uh, it, you know, uh, we, we might not have had anything anchoring us. Uh, it's not, I mean, who knows, right? It, it, we did have Kai, but it would have been a hell of a lot harder because you need something that you can focus your energies on, something that you want, that you can fight for. And, and for us, that was Kai. And, you know, this is like an odd set of questions now, but at what point do you allow yourself to enjoy things again? Like, you know, I know, like, I think it was that first week or weekend or whatever that you were able to just get your mind off things by you watched a movie, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When, but that's just to get your mind off things, to escape. When do you actually allow yourself to enjoy and, and how do you overcome the guilt that might come up when you actually enjoy something once again after the death of a child? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, and, I, and, I, and I touch on this in the book. Um, so the when I think is different for everybody. Um, I mean, ultimately, James, at some point, you got to accept that this has happened. You can't you can't just deny that it's happened and you have to make a choice that you're going to move forward. Um, and I know that sounds crazy, but at some point, if, if, if your resolve is to try to live a, as normal life as you possibly can, then you have to you have to accept what's happened. I mean, it's not like we can go back and change things. Um, you know, for, for so another part of the story that, uh, that I'll share, which is, which is also in the book is, you know, we, we had another child. So a year and a half after, after William died, our, our third son, Bodie was born. I'm at the hospital, right? And I know you have children. So you've had the experience of, you know, you, you're, you're in the, the post, uh, uh, the, the post delivery room, right? And you're, you're, you're settling down and, and, and they put Bodie on my chest. And I'm sure you've had this experience, but a common sentiment is like, oh my God, look, I have this beautiful new life in my hands. I wouldn't trade this for anything in the world. And I, that was the thought that went through my head. And then in that moment, I was like, wait, wait a second, I can't say that, can I? How, how can I possibly say that this is the, I wouldn't trade this for anything else in the world because the only reason Bodie is here is because William died. And so that was, you know, I'm, I'm having to hold these two things, right? Death of one son, birth of another, which are, which are linked. I mean, I, you know, I was at that time, I was, um, 44, 45, 44. Right. I mean, I, we weren't going to have more kids. Right. Um, and that was really hard to, to figure out how to hold those things. Um, and do a lot of work with therapists and, and, and support groups, things of that nature. You, you have to get to a place where you got to stop framing things as either, as either, or either I'm happy or I'm sad. When, when you go through something like this, you gotta, you gotta, find it in you to say, well, I can be happy and sad at the same time. I can be ha happy about Bodie and I can be devastated about, about William. And you don't talk about this in the book, but, and you don't have to answer this, but you know, you had a, this, a, a new, a son, um, Bodie, and you made the decision to have that son in, in part, or maybe entirely because William had died. And, and you talk about what your wife was going through in terms of her role as a mother and, life decisions mm -hmm. she had made. Was it hard initially when you guys were regaining intimacy? Like, again, it's something you have to enjoy, but it's, yeah. it's hard. It, it, it was hard and it was hard. And, and, um, if I'm honest, you know, the process of, of bringing Bodhi to life, uh, it, it, it was not, super intimate. It was, it was, it was functional, right? We, 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 we did, we wanted to do this. So we, we were pretty clinical about it, right? We, we figured out what the time, when the timing was right and we, we did what we had to do. So I, it wasn't, it wasn't intimate. It was just something we, we had, we had resolved to do. And so we did it. And then 
you know, obviously, you know, a new child's there. It, 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 it a new child takes a lot of time. If you're in your forties, you're going to be tired all the time with a, a brand new baby. And um, Kai also now can focus on that he had has a baby brother or there's a new baby in the house. Did looking at Bodie, particularly in those early days, always remind you of William? You know, how did you avoid thinking of him as a replacement and give him his own life in some sense? Yeah, uh, it's so. One thing we did talk about we, when we made the decision to have another child, it wasn't it wasn't about replacing William because um, that would never happen. It was about filling a void, right? We you know, we were a family of four. There was a nice symmetry to that, and we just felt very unbalanced. And and also, we wanted to give kind of the sibling. That was, I mean, that's that was one of the biggest tragedies is to have had to, to lose your sibling, to use, uh, you know, your older brother who you idolize, right. That, that was just for me, one of the most heartbreaking parts of this whole thing. And so if we could fill that void somehow, that was, that's why we decided to have Bodhi and, and also to fill voids in our own lives. Um, so no, that he, I, I wouldn't say he reminded me of William, although he looks a lot like William, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, like it's, it, he, they, I mean, so, Kai doesn't look as much as his two, like his two brothers, as the two of them look alike. It's it's pretty crazy. I mean, people have seen pictures of them, like when William was two and Bodie was two and three. Like it's like it's kind of scary, but that's never bothered me. Um, I will say that you know what was tougher for me is in those early days. You know, you're you know when, having a baby's tough, right? And 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 so when you're tired and and you can't console. Uh, your baby, it, it, that's the reminder of like, well, shit, this is where I'm at again. I'm, I'm at this stage of life. I'm having to deal with an unconsolable baby. Um, and that was really hard because I, I, just, I didn't want to be there. I, I didn't want to be in that phase of life. I, I kind of, I, I thought that ship had sailed. And, you know, when William died, we were just at the stage of our family sort of life where William was nine, Kai was six. Like we were starting to be able to do things as a family, right? There's that stage where like you can actually do things as a unit. And the minute that, and that was lost as well. So there was a long time where I was very, I was very bitter about that. I was very bitter about the fact that now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father of a newborn and, and I got to do this again. And it, it, it caused some tension for me and Susie and, 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 you know, we had to have some sort of come to Jesus type of meetings or conversations, but um, it's still something, yeah, that's, that, that's where I had to find a way to like appreciate what I have and also be okay, you know, and, 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 not blame Bodhi or, 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 or the situation on him because it had nothing to do with him. You know, you mentioned come to Jesus meetings or talks, but do you have a faith? Like, it seems like, I wonder if faith would make it easier to get through an experience like this. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish by ethnicity or by, yeah, I'm not, we're not, I'm not, it was never a practicing Jew. Um, so actually beyond, before this, before the tragedy, I, I didn't really, pay much attention to religion. I will say that since the, um, since what happened, I've become more spiritual for sure. Um, well, just know. the name Bodhi, a, a, a beautiful Buddhist name. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, we, that was my wife's, uh, my wife's idea, which I love, but you know, Bodhi is short, short for Bodhisattva who are people like souls who for, yeah, who forgo nirvana to come uh, alleviate suffering. And that was, we thought that was appropriate for him. But I, I've, I found spirituality at least, or what I, what I, what I think of as spirituality, which is, which is to try to um, look to something bigger than ourselves as a way of working our way through the, the challenges uh, of this life. You mentioned a, a Viktor Frankl quote. Mm -hmm. uh, Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search to Meaning about his experiences at Auschwitz in the Holocaust where he, you know, he lost his wife, he lost his parents. And the quote was, uh, the one thing the Nazis cannot take away from us is our ability to choose how we feel. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a great quote, which I need to remind myself of more often. And... Did you find solace in, in quotes and readings like that, like to help you remind yourself? Absolutely. I, I did a ton of reading, uh, again, as a, as a, I tend to be a deep thinker. And so I, I, I read a lot and I go inward a lot. And so I read, yeah, that, that was a, an immensely powerful book. 
because that is the one thing, that's the only thing we can have control over, right? We, as I learned the hard way, um, we don't have control over much, uh, in, in, you know, in this, in this world, but we can't control how we show up, what our attitudes are, what, you know, how we, how we deal with the different situations in our lives. And I know that's easier said than done, but it's, it's, uh, it can be done if you set that intention. I wonder if, oh, okay, well, like Victor Frankl is an interesting example where he did ultimately get out of Auschwitz and his suffering stopped for the moment or that particular suffering. Now, he had the suffering that knowing that his wife had died in a concentration camp and, and many people that he knew. But I'm wondering, like, given a, a complicated situation now, like let's say you have a difficult situation at work or some difficult emotional situation, usually people kind of toss it off and say, well, every every day has its ups and downs, or there's always ups and downs, or, you know, I've been down so long, everything's probably up from here. But when you have like something, a real tragedy happen, sometimes things don't cycle back up, right? They could just stay bad. And does that ever come into your mind now when, when considering situations when considering just any situations, or or, or like a, a bad situation, you know that that every and then and then you the, the first thought might be oh, this is one of those down moments, but they're followed by you know things cycle up and down. But but you have this realization or this awareness that sometimes things don't always cycle back up. Sure, absolutely. Look, I mean, I'm I'll be the first of it. I you know even though I've learned a lot from everything that happened, I'm. I'm I haven't put them as much into practice as I would like. It takes, it takes practice and intention. And uh, there's many times where I fall into sort of victim mode and woe is me and life sucks. And, 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 um, either I, I catch myself and remind myself of, of, you know, Victor Frankel and even Susie, when she, when she had that reaction, when she first saw me at the clinic, uh, my wife, Susie, um, or I get reminded by, by others. Right. Um, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to, you know, to, 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 to not always have the right attitude, but you know, hopefully we can catch ourselves. So to, to, at a point where it doesn't do too much damage. Like how did you rebuild your work life? So you, uh, you took six months off and yeah. then you get back to work. Like, how do you just start calling customers again and doing your job again and dealing with your coworkers? And, and now I understand, you know, you're, you're onto, you know, bigger and better things as well. And, how do, how do you do that? I mean, I think you just, in some ways that that's not as hard as you would think because it gives you a structure um, and, and a way to take your mind off things. Um, you know, you, it's, it, it, we are creatures of habit. So, you know, it's, it, it wasn't, at least for me, it wasn't too hard to kind of fall back into the old habits I'd built around, around work. And again, it was a way also for me to focus my energies uh, elsewhere. Because I think, you know, one of the things about grief and dealing with this type of loss is you also need a break from it every now and again. It, it can be, um, it takes a lot of energy and, and I think you need a break from it. And I guess knowing that you're doing it for something, like you had Kai, mm -hmm. you had, you know, Susie, you had now then Bodhi. So it allows you to give yourself permission to be creative again. You know, work requires... Good work requires some creativity. Absolutely. And yeah. and it allows you to give yourself permission to do that. And and it's kind of like how Viktor Frankl, you know, he had to find his why, his his meaning, mm -hmm. and in order to push forward. And that's what you're able to do around work. And that drives it forward. Absolutely. Um and yeah, I mean, I I think that 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 was part of it. Um and I think, you know, when you, you, know, you just use the phrase finding your why. I mean, for me, my book eventually became my why, right? You know, kind of put, put in a sense the world was a, you know, was as, as meaningful and purposeful an endeavor. You know, it's probably the most meaningful and purposeful thing I've ever done, right? Uh, it really. Yeah. And, and your, your wife writes the, the prologue and, she, you know, she starts off saying um, that you're complimentary, but this is a nice way to say that you're, the proverbial opposites who attract. And, and she says, I say yes to everything and everyone. And Nick's first response is always no. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, and she says that this book was very, even the style of this book was very different for you. I forget. So you, she says actually that you, you met on a blind date in Manhattan. What did you first think of her when you first saw her? I mean, I was, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been on blind dates, James, but you know, it's always, 
it's a bit of a crapshoot. You're, yeah. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. And this is like before, this is like a mutual friend set of stuff. This is before all the dating apps, but I was, yeah, I was like, okay, she's attractive, cute. And, 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 uh, and, you know, we, we, we had a real connection. I, I, you know, we had a really good time on our first date. Like it's the best first date I've ever had. Um, you know, we just had fun. It was easy. It was never that sort of awkward, whatever that you might experience sometimes. Um, and we, you know, we, she was 24, I was 27 at the time, you know, it was a different, different stage of life, but yeah, she just, she was bubbly. She was cute. She was, yeah, it was, it was a, a breath of fresh air for me. Yeah. And then how long were you dating before you got married? Uh, let's see. So we met 20, I'm oh, sorry, 2002, uh, four years. Okay. Uh, so, uh, obviously I, I know someone who was at your wedding our our mutual friend, Dan, and mm-hmm. he was telling me that at the wedding, uh, Susie ran and jumped right into your arms as she was as she went down the aisle. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's 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 who she is. She she uh, she's uh, bubbly, energetic, likes to have fun, and is an, an unbelievably caring person. You know, you you said earlier that there is no guidebook for this sort of thing, but I think your book is a guidebook. Like I was thinking as I was reading this, like you know, a I was thinking there, but for the grace of God, go I, because this obviously any situation can happen to anybody. But if something like this were to happen to me, I would certainly, you know, not only the things that we talked about, but many other things in the book, I would certainly read this book over and and take these lessons. Or if someone I knew had this type of grief and tragedy, I would get them this book. Like this really is like a guidebook. Like I was thinking, Boy, that's really great that Susie did it. That's that's really great that Nick thought this or did this. And I was noting, you know, because this is the scariest thing in the world, particularly if you have kids and 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 you know the impact they have on your life. By the way, nothing wrong with not having kids either, but it's a particular kind of, you know, relationship. And uh, this would be a guidebook for me if something like this ever happened to me. And my, well, my kids are out of the house; they're older; mm-hmm. they're, they're in their twenties, but still, they. No matter what, you never want to outlive your your kids as you've experienced. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, it, if it can help even one person, uh, whether it's someone who's grieving or someone who's just having a tough, going through a rough patch, um, you know, one of the things for me, you know, when you when you when this happens to you, when you when your child dies before you, it's 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 sort of a it's a smack in the face of 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 how fragile life is. I mean, you know, we were five minutes from the bottom of the, of the mountain, right? Like five minutes. And we would have been, we would have had our reunion with, with Susie and Kai would have kept skiing as a family. Like William was maybe 10 to 15 feet behind me. Right. Um, you know, half an hour before he was having the time of his life. Like it's razor thin, the margin on, or it can be between life and death. And, you know, for me as a wake up call, like, and I say this to my clients all the time, this ain't no dress rehearsal. This is it. Like, this is the one life you have that we know about anyway. And, you know, if, if you're grappling with this or that, like, don't be okay with that. Do something that's going to bring more meaning to your life or resolve whatever issues that are, you know, giving you a hard time. Um, You know, again, you don't want to, you don't want to leave this life with any regrets Look, I'm not saying throw caution to the wind, but I think many, too many people suffer unnecessarily for a slew of different reasons. And my hope is that, you know, if they read this book that, you know, they can make a different choice that'll bring them more happiness. But you, you, you coach leaders and CEOs, correct? Like executives. Well, what's the name of your business? Uh, Mirrorbox Leadership Lab. And what situations do you see them in that they suffer from that now with this perspective, you, you can say to them, like, why are you, you know, like what are some of the situations they suffer from? Look, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough, tough world right now to be an executive. I, th- I think executives are caught in an endless cycle of doing the work, being in meetings. Uh, it's a constant and endless pace of stuff that's getting thrown at them day in, day out. And I, and I, and I, and I see these executives and it's like, you do that, you do that. And then you come to the end of the year and you get a momentary pause. And then you got to start the clock all over the next year. And it's just like, you're doing that every single year over and over and over again. And I'm just like, for what? 
I'm not saying you shouldn't be an executive, but if there's a way that executives find a way to pause, that's a big theme in the book is step back, like pause, focus on what really matters. I think too many people focus on too much of what doesn't matter or is not as important for them to be focusing on. I mean, as a leader, you should be focusing on, are you on strategy? Are you, are you making sure that the vision you set forth for your company is, is you're on track to achieve that? Are you developing your people? Are you showing up as a leader you should be, uh, or you, you, you aspire to be? I've coached a lot, a lot of leaders and the majority of them aren't. And, and I think that's a, that's a shame because as a leader, you, you set the tone for everybody you lead and you have a huge impact on the lives of the people you lead and, and. Unfortunately, we've all seen the statistics of disengagement and people leaving crappy bosses, things of that nature. And it's because I think leaders don't take the time to be more intentional about how they want to lead and and be as leaders. Well, and again, and you show with this book that leadership is not just about the nine to five workplace, but you could be a leader in every area of your life and and demonstrate leadership in even the, the most tragic areas of life. And again, your book, My Teacher, My Son, Lessons on Life, Loss, and Love, Nick Shaw. I guess you could get this on Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's probably the main place people are going to buy this. Yep. And uh, it's a beautiful book. I'm really sorry for your story. It did make me cry reading the book, and it really seldom happens. I read so many books for this podcast. I can't remember the last time a book made me cry. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for writing it, and thank you for um, – Thank you for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your story. I know, I know it's it's tough as you are selling this book to probably constantly share it, but but thank you for doing this. Uh, absolutely, and and uh, thank you for you know for not being afraid to ask me the tough questions. Uh, <laughs> I think I'll, that's important. I'll, I'll always do that. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I pre- I appreciate. It. I, I honestly, I think too many people avoid it, and and honestly, I, my story is my story, and I'm happy to share it. So, yeah, thank you. All right, thank you. Oh my gosh, I almost had to walk out of that in in the middle. And I just want to mention the book is called My Teacher, My Son, Lessons on Life, Loss, and Love by Nick Shaw. You can find it on Amazon. And they also started a nonprofit based on William and William's life, WilliamsBeYourselfChallenge.org. WilliamsBeYourselfChallenge.org. I also want to mention Nick's business is called mirror box. And once again, the book is my teacher, my son, lessons on life, loss, and love. Even if you know someone who's been in this kind of tragedy, buy them the book and, you know, good luck. 